Blog Talk Radio. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. You've just landed in the Sin Bin with your hosts, Paul Rogers. You went to Princeton and we're all Eastern, weren't you, Ned? That's what it said in the yearbook, Jim. Uh-huh. And Otto Rogers. <laughs> you can't <put> <laughs> what a life. See ya. All right, let's show them what we got, guys. Okay. All right, yeah. Get out there in the ice and let them know you're there. Oh, my Alright everyone, welcome to another edition of the Seattle Simbin. I am Paul Rogers, your host. Otto cannot join us tonight because he's out being a parent with his family on vacation, so I hope he's having a great time. Uh, not sure if you guys realize this, but this has been a gigantic last several days um, in Seattle with uh, the season ticket drive, the massively successful season ticket drive, I might add, uh, that OVG and NHL Seattle put on. They sold 33,000 season ticket commitments, which was gigantic. Um, And so it's been a big week, and we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about tonight. And in particular, I have a special guest. Um, If if you guys aren't aware, there used to be something in Seattle called the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, otherwise known as the Seattle PI. And this used to be a two-newspaper town. And tragically, the Seattle PI went away. And our guest tonight, Mr. Art Teal, uh, was one of the columnists there. And he is still alive and kicking out there. He started Sports Press Northwest, and it seems like it's been a successful outing. Uh, Art, are you there? I am here. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's... um... Yes, I am alive and kicking, and I uh, have no plans to do otherwise, and uh, Sports Press Northwest <laughs> is still uh, cranking on here. We've been doing it for about seven years now, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, entrepreneurship being what it is. Uh, it's not a lot of days off, so um, so it yeah. is uh, uh, a, a bit of a chore, but uh, it is it keeps me plugged into the uh, sports community, and I've had a lot of fun uh keeping track of things and especially seeing what's happening with hockey. Now we, uh, we had a series on our, uh, site, uh, a weekly uh, six part series each Wednesday, uh, that reviewed the history of hockey in Seattle. It was, uh, we used to call it the Wayback machine. And, uh, it was a lot of fun to revisit that because years ago we were putting out the Wayback machines in a random fashion some baseball, some football, some hockey, some basketball. Um, but I thought, you know, it would be fun during the slower news time, now that uh, Seattle does have a path forward for a hockey franchise, to reissue those uh, that series. And it seems to have struck a note with uh, some hockey fans. So we got a lot of positive feedback about the history in Seattle, and, and now we actually have a future for hockey in Seattle. Right. So I, I think a lot of people might be surprised how rich Seattle's hockey history is. As you guys worked on this art, uh, what would you say is the most surprising thing that you dug up about Seattle's hockey history? Well, I first want to give credit where credit is due. The uh, two uh, his, uh, historians and archivists 
that we had for a long time, Dave Eskenazi. He's, he's been a collector of Seattle Sports Memorabilia for many, many years, and he is the uh, curator of all the photos. And my colleague and co-founder at Sports Press Northwest, Steve Rudman, was basically the writer in the, uh, in the story. He and Dave collaborated together on this. I was merely the editor and spectator on most of this, but uh, I nevertheless saw uh, all this content before and then rereading it now in the context of having a future. I suppose the answer to the question is, uh, one, from 30,000 feet, there's been a lot of hockey history here that I think most people did not know starting uh, back with the Metropolitans. And uh, that that breadth of history it was impressive. And, and I, I, I think specifically the um, events of the early years, right, uh, you know, at the end of World War One, when uh, the Patrick brothers were trying to pull together uh, Pacific Coast Hockey Association and creating a league that was almost an instantly, instantly successful and uh, actually managed to make a uh, inroads to get uh, the National Hockey Association, which was the predecessor of the NHL, to agree to a, a, a national series for the championship and uh, Lord Stanley's Cup back in 1918. I, I think we I sort of generally knew about it, but the specifics of that and, and how there were a, a chance for three titles in four years and the fact that the Spanish influenza of 1919 uh, ended a, 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 the uh, the dynasty, I guess, of uh, the Seattle Metropolitan, and uh, just sort of the, the, you know, the random nature of uh, influences back then when the ice arena at Fourth and University was the home for uh, hockey in Seattle. That that stuff I thought was really entertaining, and uh, I hope people who did read it enjoy it. And if you haven't, press nw.com, look it up. And uh, you'll see all six parts of the series. And the first one, I think, is really a hoot because we learn about Frank Flash Foyston and a lot of his compadres in that first team. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. And I, because of that, I probably have a predisposition to wanting to see the team named the Metropolitan just for historical continuity. I know there are many other votes out there, but that's my vote. That's one. So, uh, okay, I was so going to ask you about that. But, yeah. Go ahead. So <clears throat> it seems like in, in hockey there there's no shortage of colorful characters. And uh, you mentioned one to begin with, but it, it seems like there's still, um, if you watch the game, some of the most colorful characters you're going to find in professional sports, aren't they? Yeah, well, it seems so. Um, you know, I mean, I, there's obviously – you have to have a certain kind of aggressive personality to be a professional hockey player. And um, I don't think these guys deal with a lot of gray in their lives, you know, and a lot of black and white. <laughs> and uh, and that means that there's, you know, uh, a right way and a wrong way. And uh, there's not a lot of tolerance for indecision or uh, any of the other things that tend to complicate the lives of us ordinary mortals. Um, right and uh, and so it's you know uh, and you know certainly the the power and the violence of the game brings you know that just it's a it's a special disposition that um, you know comes to the fore 
and uh, it really takes a lot of tough guys. And uh, so that, you know, like I say, it just it brings uh, that edge and that drama to the sport pretty much like no other one. I think that football obviously can become as close, but um, there's, you know, the, the hockey movement, generally speaking, is a lot more frequent and steady than uh, the, the right. action in, in football. And the, I'll never forget uh, George Will, a political commentator, um, he's been a big baseball fan and he can't stand football and his line about football and why he um, can't stand it. He said, uh, it brings out the two worst aspects of American culture, violence and committee meetings. And I always <laughs> liked that. And he, uh, he didn't care for the huddle and the breaks between action. And um, so I think that's, you know, a part of hockey's appeal and uh, it draws a certain kind of personality a certain level of energy uh, going for the entirety of a hockey game. Right. So in a little bit, Art, I'm going to ask you about the the successful ticket drive of last week and how well things are going now. But um, it hasn't always been this way, has it? I mean, we've had numerous uh, flirtations with the NHL over the last 30, 40 years. Um, how close have we come in the past to getting that league? Well, there were a couple of episodes um, sort of in the semi-modern era. Uh, uh, late in the, or the middle 70s was an opportunity there when the, uh, uh, I believe it was in 74, the NHL awarded a conditional franchise to Seattle and the owner of the Seattle Totals, um, Vince Abbey, an attorney. And uh, the Western Hockey League had fallen on some hard times. Of course, the NBA had come to town in 1967 with the Sonics, and uh, Portland got a team in 1970. So uh, I think hockey kind of fell into the shadows of basketball in, in the Northwest, and and that um, undercut the following of the Western Hockey League, which would, uh, with Seattle and Portland as prominent members. And so uh, but, but clearly the NHL wanted at that time to be part of a growing city, and so they uh, awarded the conditional franchise both here and another one in Denver. And for a lot of arcane reasons too long to go into here, Vince Abbey could not come up with the funds. I think he needed to have a $4 million uh, expansion fee, and he also needed to pay back money he owed to the Vancouver Canucks, which at that time in the early 70s was a parent club of the totems, and they they took on Vince's debt, and he became a – the totems became a farm team. And Vince couldn't pay back the Canucks, nor could he come up with the money. So, um, basically, he defaulted on the agreement, and Seattle lost its chance for a team in the mid-'70s. And then later on, in the early 90s, it came a second chance when the owner of the Sonics at the time, Barry Ackerley, wanted to build – um, a new arena in a uh, property he owned that uh, was uh, next to the kingdom. And he wanted to build a basketball hockey facility. At least he said he did it at one point. Uh, and again, another long story, but um, he had a partner, Chris Larson, who Mariner fans know is the, the, the number one American owner when the team was saved in 1995 by uh Japanese billionaire Hiroshi Yamauchi, 
Like uh, Larson was a uh, became rich after Microsoft went public in 1986. Had a big itch for sports. Wanted to be part of a hockey team. And he and Barry Ackerley and a former Totem star by the name of Bill McFarland, who was a player and a coach in the uh, Totem's heyday in the late 60s, early 70s, they all went down to Tampa, Florida to make uh, make the agreement to get a hockey team in Seattle, or at least make the pitch to get an expansion franchise. And to the surprise of Larson and McFarland, Barry Ackerley, got up in front of the owners meeting and said, we're withdrawing our applications. Thank you very much. Bye now. And uh, it turned out McFarland would say this. And I think, I, I think I would agree with him that Barry Ackerley really didn't want a hockey team in this new arena to compete with dates for his basketball team. He would like the rental income, but he didn't want to put up with the hassle. And so he never told his, his partners about his agenda before they got there. They were all dumbstruck. This is in uh, part five of the uh, story, in much better detail than I'm telling it. But um, Barry Ackerley just pulled a rug out from hockey in the early 90s, and subsequently he decided that he would demand that the city renovate the old Coliseum into what became Key Arena in 1995. And the city put up about, uh, I think, $74 million in construction bonds, and they got the arena it was basketball only, but it could not accommodate the NHL because the seating configurations in that small floor plan didn't allow for both goals to be seen by most of the patrons. So, um, so that went away, and those, those were the two big opportunities that Seattle had in the 70s and in the 90s to be an NHL team, and it didn't work out, and here we are, 2018, still looking. Yeah, and so, Art, I've always kind of wondered about – if Ackerley had uh, gone in there with good faith and we'd actually gotten the team, would we still have the Sonics? Because they would have done the arena differently, wouldn't they? Well, the, you know, that's an interesting question. I've had that kicked around uh, with some other folks I know. And, and it, um, I, I think it, it would have been a different and bigger arena, but I don't know that, it, it would have worked because if you had to preserve the roof as uh, the Oakview group is, must do, um, there was really no place to put the floor and get a full view of um, the ice without, you know, cutting in, into the seating capacity very severely. So I don't know that there was a, an engineering way to do it back then the only way they're doing it now is um, Tim Lewicki decided to go 15 feet deeper and make the bowl lower, and and it cost him $100 million bucks. That was more yeah. than the entire uh, renovation in 1995. So, uh, you know, Lewicki is, is really uh, figuratively and literally in deep <laughs> Uh, in this project, and uh, I, I assume that he must have penciled this thing out because $600 million in private money is absolutely astonishing, and that certainly wasn't going to be happening in 1995. So I don't know if there was a way to figure out uh, how to get hockey and basketball in that arena for the funds available at that time. Right. Okay, so from the mid-'90s, we fast-forward, what, 20, 30 years or so, 
And uh, Chris Hansen tries to build an arena in Soto. Uh, that doesn't work out for many different reasons. Um, and then uh, Tim Lewicki and OBG shows up, and they are able to get a proposal approved to renovate Key Arena for NHL and NBA. And then last week, uh, and, and then the NHL, uh, on approval of that arena, allows them to apply for expansion. Last week, they held the what was supposed to be the beginning of the season ticket drive, but they just blew everyone out of the water with 33,000 uh, season ticket commitments. Does that make expansion pretty much just a formality art? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, my wiki has many connections through a lifetime of... Uh, Sorry, I had a brief interruption there, but uh, can you still hear me? <laughs> I can hear you. Okay, good. Um, yeah, it was, um, I think Lywicki's connections, I think his ability to summon the cash for this uh, endeavor and also get the wink and nudge that he needed in the run-up to the ticket sale from the NHL was sufficient to, uh, I think, grease the skids. I don't think there's going to be any problem in uh, this summer. The NHL owners will be meeting in mid-June, and that's the next step in the process. They they need to uh, approve uh, a franchise for 2020. I don't see any impediments based on the information I've had uh, so far that would, you know, I mean, I suppose somebody could find out that some of the uh, – some of the ticket sales were done by robots, but uh, I even asked that specific question to make sure that uh, Ticketmaster took precautions to avoid that sort of thing. And there was no, uh, the information I had was that there was no evidence of any kind of fraud in in, ter- in producing those numbers, which mm-hmm. does happen these days. Um, so if, if that is indeed the case, I think the marketplace certainly is the 12th largest in the country, the biggest market without winter sports, and the fact that it's in the the, the hometown of Amazon and Starbucks and and, uh, Microsoft and all of these Fortune 500 companies makes this kind of a slam dunk from a marketplace standpoint. And the trust they have in Liwiki to execute the building is high. Now, we don't know yet what it's going to entail because digging 15 feet under the current facility could bring a whole host of mystery uh, from a geology standpoint and a logistical standpoint, so we don't know that. And and all parties agree that this is a very aggressive schedule to get this thing demolished and rebuilt in basically a 24-month calendar uh, to open in October of 2020. So... I could see where there's going to be some setbacks and some going sideways, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if they have to push back a year. Uh, but really they can't know until uh, the environmental impact statement is done, completed. They, they estimate September for that. And if there are no untoward problems, then they have to go from there um, and to see if they can get this project, uh, the de- uh, demolition begun in October of this year. So, um there's drama here, but I don't think there's anything insurmountable as far as I can see right now. Okay. All right. With all the 
the stuff Hanson had to go through, the political opposition, um, and you know it's it's well documented. I don't want to rehash all of it, but how did how was Lewicki able to essentially push this thing through from uh, proposal to um, approved arena to being on the doorstep of expansion approval? How was he able to do this in not much more than a year? Well, uh, unlimited amounts of money and the opportunity to get the political support because he's creating or he's enhancing an already existing civic asset. Um, I think a lot of people in Seattle don't understand that um, Seattle Center is more than just a park. It is a department of the city, just like the fire department, police department. It's that big a deal. And every mayor since 1962, when the Coliseum was created after the World's Fair, always has the, the fate and the future of the Seattle Center as one of his top ten agenda items. And it's often called Seattle's living room. And so it's an important place to draw a lot of activity. And so when Laiwiki showed up on scene when Hanson had already been years into the project, he understood very clearly that the politicians would support him very quickly if he could come up with a proposal that said the 55-year-old uh, key arena was not only salvageable, but it could be made into a world-class venue. And his history in arena building, even though he's had a few flops, uh, by and large, when his, with his time at Anstruss Entertainment Group, AEG, he had an impressive record of getting buildings done. So his knowledge of the engineering aspects and his knowledge of the arena operation aspects gave him credibility with the politicians that Chris Hansen didn't have. I mean, Chris was a hedge fund inventor, investor and uh, manager with no experience in arena building. Now, you can hire that out, but Hansen's resume relative to arenas and Laiwiki's resume, uh, there's just no contest. But the question is, and it still is out there, can you build this building for the money that you said? And if you don't, if you can't, how do you continue to fund it? And at every step of the way, Laiwiki says he'll get the money. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but um, I do know that he partners with Madison Square Garden, which is a more than just an arena. It's a, it's a company, and it's owned by James Dolan, who is the owner of the Rangers and the Knicks. He's a pretty eccentric guy, but he's very, very wealthy, and he's giving uh, Lewicki the green light on whatever funds it takes because they want to be part of Seattle. And the other, the other thing, too, to answer your question about well, how this happened. Um, when Hansen started uh, his land, his property acquisition, that was 2011, and Seattle was still coming out of the recession. And the uh, the world has changed since then. Amazon, while what was a going concern then, was not the colossus it is today. And Seattle became every year more and more attractive to bigger and bigger money, Amazon being the chief driver in that. So as a consequence, 
the idea of having a, a tricked-out key arena a mile from their headquarters seemed like a very good idea to a lot of business people, including Waiwiki and his partners. And they thought that this was a great opportunity. Now, they're taking a big financial risk in saying they can do this, and I still think that they're, I would ask them to, to pencil out how they're going to make this thing break even on an operational basis, mm-hmm. simply because um, it's going to be really expensive for you and me to attend events there, whether it's concerts, hockey, or basketball. Um, right. And and so is the money there for, for middle-class people to do that, or is it going to be a hockey game as a birthday present or an anniversary present? So that remains to be seen. I'm still a little skeptical on, on the funding of that, but my wiki knows more than I do. Um, I'm just looking at it from the standpoint that it's never been done quite the way LiWiki proposes to do it. And so the jury remains out as to whether this is going to be financially solvent. But he thinks it is, and I guess the city's not stopping it. So one of the concerns of NBA fans, Sonics fans, uh, since this started getting getting momentum last year was, um, you know, primary concern was the location traffic parking and whatnot. But also one of the common concerns that I saw was the pool of money available to the NBA and the NHL. Um, And so the question being, can this arena support both leagues financially? And what I was wondering is, does the fact that they sold 33,000 season ticket commitments, which which is essentially double the arena capacity, does that alleviate some of that concern? Well, I don't think you can judge too much by this sudden burst. I mean, it's a positive, you know, but to to extrapolate too much is kind of dangerous because the commitment is $500 and $1,000 for suite uh, holders, you know, and and so that might be a lot of money to you or me, but to the people who can afford these things, it's not a big deal. So the question, I think, as opposed to the ticket sales is, is, there enough support from a sponsorship marketing standpoint professional uh, to professional sports teams in a market that already has the NFL, MLB, a major league soccer team that is at least as successful as the other enterprises, plus a Division One football program and basketball program. Uh, that is a lot, and one of those enterprises is going to be the sixth ticket in town and that's always been my um, question who is going to be the sixth ticket and uh, the NHL understood that I think uh, implicitly and explicitly because they knew that if they came in after the NBA into Seattle they would forever be the little brother and Mm -hmm. whatever sponsorships and uh, marketing opportunities there were for the NHL or for the first team in, they may not be there for the second team, especially since the uh, the, the NBA came first. They had 41 years of history in this town and a great affection uh, that would be rekindled. So the N- NHL could not afford to be the second team in. And as a consequence, by being the first team in, they're going to have at least a three or four or five year head start before the NHL is, or before the NBA is ready to expand or, or relocate a team. 
So this was absolutely right. essential, and that was probably more important than almost anything else, and more important than the season ticket uh, sales and more important than a lot of the political success, is they had to be first in this town before they, uh, before they had a fighting chance to make it work as a six-ticket pro sports market. Right. So that uh, you kind of referred to it a little bit as far as three or four years after, but um, there, there's no guarantee that the NBA is coming uh, in at any point, but if if it does, how how far out do you think it is? Well, I think uh, based on the information I've had, and I've talked to people in the NBA and in the television world, uh, the the, uh, uh, the NBA's television contracts that are uh, currently in effect ex- uh, with uh, TNT and ESPN expired uh, on after the twenty four the twenty twenty four and the twenty twenty five season and that means that their rights will be up for bid. And I think the NBA is looking to that window to expand because I think, uh, and I've heard this uh, from multiple sources, that the agenda for the NBA is one or two years ahead of that uh, expiration of the contract. They're going to be open to expansion because they want to, Tease the the um, TV networks uh, and by then streaming companies um, that they're going to have two new markets and those two new new markets, one of which will be Seattle and the other, I'm told, is going to be Mexico City. So the opportunity mm-hmm. is there for the NBA to be in three nations with Canada, U.S. and Mexico, and they will have one. You know, I mean, the team in in Mexico will be the national team, much as the uh, Raptors are in Toronto for Canada. So, uh, I think that is their the NBA's agenda is to add two teams that, uh, in major markets that will be attractive to the TV networks in order to get them to pay more money. So, there's a strategy here that involves Seattle that I think the NBA is going to see play out. Again, lots of things can happen between now and then, but that's that's the notes on the cocktail napkin of the NBA as far as how to look at this thing three to five years down the road. So I think okay. they might open the expansion in 2023 for the opportunity to create a team in Seattle for the 2025-26 uh, uh, season. Okay. Well, Art, I want to thank you for coming on. I know you're really busy, so it's really nice of you to join us. And uh, thanks for talking history and future with us. Sure. It was a lot of fun. I think uh, people are going to be really excited about uh, what's going to happen here. And I'm very surprised at all how fast it's happened. Uh, but I, I think hockey fans should be very jacked. Uh, this lamp is lit. Right. And, Art, once again, um, you mentioned this earlier, but how can people uh, – read your articles and how how can they follow you on Twitter? Uh it's uh sportspressnw.com sportspressnw.com all one word no other punctuation and my Twitter handle is art underscore teal T H I E L. So uh, right. please give me a follow and uh please take a look at that stuff I, and the sin bin has been good about retweeting so that's very cool. Thank you for the help. All right. 
Art, thanks for coming on, and I, I hope to have to talk to you in the future. All right, Paul. My pleasure. That was Art Teal of Sports Press Northwest. He was kind enough to join us and talk about uh, Seattle's hockey history and everything that's gone into it and the bright future that we've got ahead of us. And so I really appreciate his time, and I look forward to having him as a guest in the future. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode. And uh, I want to thank all of you for joining us and for supporting the the podcast. Uh, this wouldn't be anything without our listeners and it wouldn't be anything without our guests either. Um, Otto Rogers, if you're out there listening to the podcast, uh, wherever you are, uh, I hope you're having a great vacation. And to the rest of you, um, have a great day and good luck. <laughs>